Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. My prayer for all of us is that as we um, go through this whole conference that we grow not only in knowledge, but also in love for that knowledge. And through growing in that love for that knowledge, we also grow in wisdom. And wisdom is very different from knowledge because wisdom is the appropriate utilization of knowledge. And as we uh, grow in all of that, then we grow in hope uh, as Christians, as Catholics. Um, as human beings. Um, I have to start by making a disclaimer that some of the things that I will be talking about here um, are um, sexually, uh, in a way, explicit, not in terms of pic pictures, but in terms of the content. Um, I'll explain that and hopefully you'll see it come out in what I'm talking about. My background is as a behavioral neuroscientist. Um, and I make that distinction because one of my roles and one of my loves and what I, the reason I do what I do is this whole idea of investigating not just at the molecular level, and I'm not trying to diminish the importance of doing so, um, of doing that, uh, but uh, investigating, investigating uh, um, the, what's going on in the brain and how it relates directly to behavior. Okay, so one of the beauties of behavioral neuroscience is that it brings the investigation of the nervous system, looks at it, investigates it, and says, how is this relevant to the behavior in the whole unit that I'm investigating, be it an animal, be it a human being. So I hope that in what I talk, what I say, uh, you will see this connection of the wholeness. Um, Thomas Merton says, there is no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. Um, and this is something that as I have studied neuroscience more and more, it's something that I've come to comprehend, uh, not only just accept, but comprehend and really appreciate. Because I can't be a spiritual person without taking into consideration my physicality, my body, my brain that God gave me. So by the end of this talk, to give you some goals, and Molly, please make sure you start yelling at me when I get beyond the time, um, to understand the relationship between brain, body, and behavior, okay, and their application to life in general. What I seek to do in this talk is not to explain to you everything that neuroscience has explained, because that a year of, t of talking would not do, do that. Um, to understand better uh, that we cannot separate spirituality from brain, body, and behavior if we wish to understand what it means to be a human. So my goal here is to, certainly to lay a foundation into understanding how human behavior occurs from a physiological perspective. I always emphasize with my students that I am not here to tell you what to tell the uh, person you are, for example, counseling. I, I, I am not a counselor. I am here to understand, to seek to understand the physiology that makes us function, that makes us work. Um, to understand how knowledge of neuroscience benefits in, in, in this fundamental, um, in our personal spiritual life, 
well-being as well as society, even when the research seems to be so distant from the whole person, from God maybe. Understand that faith helps to complement and elevate huma humanity, uh, that, that the humanity that science is seeking to comprehend. Faith and science do not contradict each other. This is how, for me, it, all, it came together. And this diagram was something that took me years, literally, to bring together. On the inside, you have the physical, the physiological that takes place. We are genetic beings, we are biological beings, and we cannot deny that. How our genes do not predetermine us, but they do affect who, how, who we are. You have people who are predisposed to, uh, we call, them, uh, call it risk-taking behavior. And that has been correlated to certain receptors that exists within, exist within the brain. So our genes do affect our behavior and uh, therefore our psychology. How we behave, ultimately we act on the environment. And that environment can be us, our body, those people immediately around us, or the world in general. Acting on the environment causes a response, and that response leads to changes in our genetic expression. And as I always explain, uh, that does not mean that you are going to st start growing a third arm or a f second head, but what it does mean is that certain things change within your body, and it's the proteins that, are, uh, that change in terms of their expression. Uh, Dr. Keebler spoke about the importance of chemistry and how uh, and the folding of protein of uh, uh, proteins, um, and this is something that is really important. That aspect there is really actually important. The epigenetic influence is basically how the environment affects who we become physiologically. I can change myself, and we are always constantly changing ourselves. As we learn, as we study, we are changing the way our brain is wired. Ultimately, that has a, 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 an effect on the genes, and ultimately that aspect can be passed on. On the other hand, as humans, we have the additional factor that comes, and that's the spiritual aspect. Um, which gives us this moral awareness that then gives us a sense of direction and that sense of direction can ultimately affect um, our psychology and our behavior. Um, the thing I need you to keep in mind, and this may, these may be a couple of ridiculous examples, um, but you, you, you need to um, comprehend uh, the difference, I guess, between an animal and a human, because an animal also has this. Okay. Uh, one, aspect, one example that I give is uh, if I had to put a male rat in a cage of females that are in heat, that rat is never going to go to a corner and say, you know, I need to be prudent here around the females. Um, that rat is going to do what they need to do. Uh, likewise, in my career and in all of the administration of psychostimulant drugs that I have done, not to myself, just to clarify, um, <laughs> I... I have never had any rats come up to me and say, you know, this is really harmful to me and the, people, the rat, other rats in my cage. I would like you to stop administering amphetamine. Animals do not have that capacity, but as humans, we do. So, as I said, my goal here is to give you a basic understanding of certain things that most lay people or many lay people, and sometimes I believe even many scientists, take for granted are actually taking place in the brain. Um, Thomas Merton says the spiritual life is first and foremost a life. 
Therefore, in order to live our spiritual life, we need to comprehend and understand what our physicality is. We believe that grace builds on nature. Therefore, by default, what that says is you need to understand your nature in order for, for you to be able to really understand what grace may be doing. Um, if we look at Ignatian spirituality, um, St. Ignatius focuses on the fact that we need to be aware, we need to understand, we need to act. How do you do that if you don't use your brain? Okay, so if we had to look at this brain, if I had to very simply divide it for you, one of the things that we uh, see in general, okay, I'm generalizing significantly here. If you had to split the brain in this direction like this, across there, um, what you sort of see is that this part of the brain tends to be involved more with the sensory aspect, receiving information. On the other hand, this front part of the brain tends to be more involved with the action. In fact, even the uh, premotor cortex, the, sorry, the motor cortex and the sensory cortex are these regions over, uh, over here. So sensory is over here and um, the motor, which causes us to act, is over here. Uh, that's a very simple uh, division. Father Tim Gallagher in his uh, Discernment of Spirits says this, and I find it very significant because sometimes, and I, I think we do this even here on this campus, we are so ready to refer to the spiritual forgetting that we need to deal with the physical. Um, the less we do to overcome physical tiredness or psychological depression, non-spiritual desolation, the more likely we are to experience spiritual desolation as well. If we are tired, depressed, the step to discouragement in our God-given calling to diminishing fidelity in prayer or in God's service generally is very small. Okay, so again, the implication here is I need to understand what's going on in me and then work on that. And we see that even in various aspects in the wisdom of the church. Now, my goal here is certainly not to be a theological talk, but what you're seeing here is how my I myself um, think this through and work this through and bring faith and science to come together in my thinking, in my doing, when I'm doing research and in what I'm seeking to understand. Now, uh, this was from, I got this from Apple Seeds from uh, Father Brian. Um, in our increasingly immediate gratification-driven society, feelings are behind the wheel. This is what formation and training are all about learning to conscientiously move our feelings to the back seat and have our willpower and intellect in the driver's seat. And the, the reason I wanted to bring this up is because, as I've said, I, you know, I could go in great depth in terms of the neuroscience on its own, but as a behavioral neuroscientist, I do not just focus on what is going on in the brain. I focus on what's going on in the brain and how that relates to the rest of the body. Therefore, what happens to the rest of the body is important to the brain as well. And this is how that's the kind of angle that I'm bringing in and coming into. And this, this slide and some of my slides are pretty busy. But the reason I bring this up, this clearly shows an interaction and a relationship that many have taken for granted for many years. 
Um, you know, for many years we used to think that the immune system was separate, didn't do anything to the brain. Well, you know, when you are sick, technically you are suffering from, a, from an acute form of depression. Physiologically, there are many similarities. And those similarities are seen in this interaction between the, um, the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and the adrenal axes and the, all of the things that they affect. This axis, known as the HPA axis in short, is one of the most fundamental axes that affects our immune system, affects our neurotransmitter systems, affects therefore our behavior. Now, yes, we are not robots, we are not totally uh, slaves of the system, but what we are seeking to do as humans is to control what is going on in a way that we elevate our physiology and ourselves to God. So one of the things I need you to keep in mind as we go forward from here is whatever you do peripherally affects the way you function generally. You, I can't do something to my foot without affecting what's going on in my brain. Okay, just because they are distant from each other, they still go together. So the neuroscience perspective, I'm going to give you another simplification here that you may wish to uh, remember. Um, if I had to divide the brain into two major regions, I would divide the brain into the executive function, the cortex, and then you've got the limbic system, which is the lower brain. The lower brain is similar it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a rat or a human. Where we differ as humans is in the cortex. Now, whether you're a rat or a human, the cortex is always involved in controlling the lower brain. Sometimes, maybe the way I have come across, some people may have gotten the idea that what I'm suggesting is that we should all go and have surgery and remove the limbic system. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the limbic system, being the lower part of the brain, is necessary for our survival. Without a limbic system, we wouldn't exist. Because it's what enables us to respond to fear, to danger, okay, and to novelty, etc. But, be it an animal or be it human, although in a human it is at a much higher level and obviously then um, our free will, etc. comes into it, the cortex needs to control the limbic system. The higher brain needs to control the lower brain. This is what, uh, what, what I was referring to with regards to the quote that I showed earlier with regards to putting the emotions in the back seat. We are not saying eliminate the emotions. We didn't say throw them out of the car. We said put them in the back seat and control them. Emotions are necessary and important. And if you think about it, you do it all the time. If you had a, what may have looked like a dangerous stimulus put in front of you, say a rattlesnake, your emotions, your limbic system says run. But then your brain, your upper brain kicks in and says it's just a toy. Okay, we're doing this on a continuous basis. I even tell my students, you know, when you, for example, um, if, if, you listen, if I'm lecturing and you're listening to what I'm saying, at that point, what I'm saying is the signal. Everything else is the noise. The moment you switch off and zone me out, then I become the noise. Whatever you're thinking about is the signal. The brain functions continuously on this signal-to-noise capacity and ability. And that is the relationship between the, the cortex and the limbic system. If we look at diseases, 
Most of the diseases, while the DSM is probably about this thick, most of the diseases that exist in humanity involve some sort of an imbalance at one point or another with various slight tweaks between signal to noise where the cortex is not adequately controlling the lower brain. So how do we seek to understand human behavior? For that purpose, we utilize animals, um, especially rats. I mean, they're, they're great guys. Um, <laughs> so um, one of the things that I want to, to uh, impart here is the fact that um, with regards to the utilization of animals that some people may, be, uh, um, uh, may, may not like, um, there are strict regulations that control this. Okay, and this is something that needs to be kept in mind. Um, any research scientist that abuses the animals that they are utilizing is stupid. Um, because when a person abuses the animals that they are using, then the data that they get is invalid. So even if you don't respect the animal, for the sake of the data, you need to respect the animal. Okay? Um, so. It's, uh, that's something I really need to get across. And the reason I bring this aspect in is because I've already talked about the fact how animal brains and human brains have a lot of similarities. And that is how we seek to understand and comprehend what is going on in the human brain. So if you look at these two structures, this is a rat brain, mouse brain, uh, doesn't really make any difference, they look pretty much the same. The cortex, which is the higher part of the brain, um, is uh, significantly smaller than the human, uh, does not have the, the uh, hills and valleys, if you want to call them that, that the human brain has. Um, but you see, in terms of the, different, the similarity in colors, that there are many similar uh, structures between, within the human brain as there are in the animal brain. And this is one of the ways that we seek to understand and comprehend the underlying mechanisms that cause behavior. Okay? Again, is this uh, cross-section here, a sagittal section of a mouse brain, what you are seeing here is what's called the meso mesolimbic dopamine system. Uh, this here is the, the ventral tegmental area and the, the um, substantia nigra. These are the parts that contain the cell bodies, the heads, if you want to call it, the control uh, center of the cells uh, that ultimately release dopamine in this area. This isn't a mouse. A human brain would show something very similar. Okay, we, we have both of those regions and you see them here. Um, I was not able to find an image that was similar to that, but this is the substantia nigra and these are the cell bodies. That's them here, them and here. This part here is associated with uh, the ability to control movement, our voluntary movement. This part here, is, which is known as the ventral tegmental area, is associated with drugs of abuse, drug abuse. Okay. Uh, where the, those, those neurons, while they start there, they continue and end in what's called as the striatum, known as the dorsal striatum and the ventral striatum, or the caudate putamen area, which is the top, and the nucleus accumbens. Again, caudate putamen area is associated with Parkinson's disease, nucleus accumbens with drugs of abuse. Again, in humans, you see exactly the same thing. Now, what we've seen in animals with regards to the dopamine release, what we've seen in animals with regards to drug, drugs of abuse, we've seen in humans. At this point now, we even have technology that enables us to, for example, see MRIs that tell us what is going on in humans. 
So for example, one of the things that you will see, I'll come to this in a second, one of the things that you will see in people who abuse with alcohol or even in schizophrenia, and again, this sort of reinforces what I've said earlier, that, that in most of the issues that we see that relate to the brain, um, there is this imbalance between the cortex and the lower brain. What you will see is increased ventricular size, and by ventricles I'm talking about these, you'll see decreased cortex, cortical thickness, and in, certainly in drugs of abuse especially, uh, you'll see increased activation in this area. When it comes to, you see here withdrawal, negative effect, binge intoxication. Now most of us don't spend our time in these states, I would hope. Um, but you remove and try and block those aspects there. What you're seeing here uh, is a diagram in a way of our daily life. Okay, um, what I do, what I see, the stimulus my eyes receive, the information that, um, that my brain receives um, is uh, processed at the level of the nucleus accumbens. That's the area that, that um, looks at novelty. That's where it first comes in. That reinforces what I'm doing. From the reinforcement comes the habit. From the habit, then we involve the cortex and we involve the hippocampus, which is involved in memory. Memory affects also then the amygdala. The amygdala is a complex little um, uh, uh, area of the brain that is involved in the, mo in the emotional state. Um, and in doing so, um, affects how we react and respond, feel about the particular actions or whatever we are doing, whatever we are experiencing. And then from that, there can be obviously, especially in the case of um, the drug, drug abuse, negative emotional consequences um, if we uh, withdraw from what we are doing. But it doesn't have to be drugs of abuse. If I've been doing any habit for a particular point in, for a particular amount of time, we all know how difficult it is or how bad it feels to try and get off it. Neurons communicate with each other via different code. It's like Morse code. And it literally sometimes sounds like machine gun fire. I did have a sound, um, a, a sound uh, file there, but I'm, I, for time's sake, I'm not going to do it. Um, but that's the way uh, neurons communicate with each other. Now, just to give you an idea of the complexity of what we're talking about, um, and again, even if I don't get through the rest of the material, the appreciation that my goal here is to get you to walk out of here, understanding the complexity of what is going on up there. Okay, not that I understand it fully, I don't want to give that impression. Um, so, this here is the simple neuromuscular junction. This is simple because you have one neurotransmitter that is released, you have one action that is possible, which is the contraction of the muscle. This here is a synaptic spine in the, in, in the brain. Um, note, I'll come back to that in a second. This is a neuron, a pyramidal neuron, typically found in the cortex. Notice all of these little bumps here. Those are all individual spines. Now, I told you that at a neuromuscular junction, um, at the neuromuscular junction, only one neurotransmitter is released, one action is possible. That's not the case in the brain. Here is one spine. Please note the number of inputs. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 
11 inputs going into one of those tiny spines. Can you imagine how many there are in those thousands that you saw in the other neuron? This is the complexity of the information and then, you know, we, we are here to integrate faith and science. Well, one of the things that you see when you look at something like this is the logic. The logic that exists. Dr. Keebler spoke, and I, I totally agree with what he said, spoke about this aspect. The, uh, the logic that exists within nature as God created it. So, for example, mo in general, okay, this is a general statement. Inputs, inputs that are excitatory, that stimulate, are usually at the head of the spine. If you want to stop something, if, I wanted to, if you were accelerating and I wanted to stop you from accelerating, where would I put a block of wood? If I could do that, I'd put it between your foot and the accelerator. Well, most of the inhibitory synapses are in the neck of the spine, where you would expect them to be in terms of preventing unnecessary stimuli. And this constant filtration of signal to noise is occurring constantly in the human brain. Um, Neuronal plasticity. I talked to you about that spine because that is something you really need to comprehend. I think sometimes we, we, we forget that when we are studying, when we are learning, when we are listening, things are changing in the way our brain is wired. And what changes is those spines. Those spines are key in the changes that take place in the brain. So, for example, what you're seeing here is no stress. And here you're seeing a decrease in the number of spines under situations of stress. Okay? You look here, this is saline and cocaine. Look at the number of spines in, sal in the saline injected uh, rat or mouse, I can't recall what it was here. Um, look at the number of spines in the cocaine injected. What we are doing constantly is changing the way our brain is connected. The brain does function on a user or lucid basis, okay? So as, as we learn, we change the wiring of the brain. Remember the epigenetic aspect I mentioned earlier when I showed that diagram? That's how we can change our behavior. That's how we do change our behavior. Okay, so when we are participating in a particular behavior, that particular behavior will cause uh, certain chemical changes within these spines that ultimately, if it keeps on being repeated, if it keeps on being uh, uh, supported, uh, will ultimately lead to uh, an increase in the increase in the number of spines. Um, this, as I said, happens in um, all sorts of situations. And just keep this in mind. And I emphasize this because sometimes we get angry at ourselves or angry at others because they won't change. But just keep this in mind. In order to form uh, a type of stimulus that is known as a long-term potentiation, uh, a stimulus, uh, such a stimulus would only take potentially uh, a two-minute stimulation at a high frequency. To erase that same message may take over a year. All it took was two minutes. It stayed there for a year. So, <laughs> self-control and discipline. Again, now I'm going to sort of go quickly through this and, and I'll, I'll stop with the, uh, um, uh, with the time. Um, but, uh, well, you know, one of the things that you, you hear a lot in today's society is with regards to attention um, ADHD. Uh, one of, this is a paper that basically shows that there is a delay in the cortical development. I'm not going to go into the, the pros and the cons and the issues. There's plenty of them and I could certainly share plenty of that with regards to the administration of drugs in situations like this. 
But one of the things that needs to be kept in mind is this here, this delay in cortical development, there is cortical development taking place even as in any teenager especially. So throughout the, the teenage years, uh, with the surge in hormones and chemical changes that take place, because hormones don't do just what hormones do, they also affect chemical and etc. Um, chemical neurotransmission. Um, one of the things that's changing is cortical thickness. This is why we need to train ourselves as young children, or parents need to train their children at a point when the brain is very malleable. And that is in the early years of life, because that's when the brain has the capacity to change. And then it sort of, it, it doesn't, I, I, I would be wrong to say becomes fixed. It becomes more difficult to change. Okay, so that's something to keep in mind. Um, yeah, sometimes the rats do feel that way. Um, so, going to some of the experiments that we are doing, uh, in order to relate it to this aspect of faith. Okay, um, we are looking at reward and motivation. That's one of the experiments, as Molly mentioned, we are also looking at uh, uh, post-abortive depression um, in, in, uh, in an animal model. But if I focus on this aspect of, uh, of reward and motivation, what you're seeing here is the different behaviors, and this is preliminary data. The, um, the different behaviors between male rats and female rats. We give them different uh, solutions that have different strength of sugar, which is a natural reward, and we also make it, have them have access to the sugar in a different way, as in we have a, uh, a group that has easy access and a group that has difficult access, and that's the way we measure motivation. I don't have the time to go to, into great detail about this, but there are some very clear differences within, between males and females. But where is this study? going. It is my belief, my sincere belief, uh, given the, the, the way, what I have seen in the human brain, uh, and I think logically as well, that the way we train ourselves in the little things is the way we will behave when it comes to the bigger things. Okay? So my, my, the goal that we are, the direction that we are going in the study is after we establish the behavior of these sexes and, and under certain different uh, levels of motivation, the, go the goal, next goal would be how will a rat behave if it is constantly exposed to a high level of sucrose solution, constantly, without any limitation, without any restriction in access, and then is administered a drug of abuse such as cocaine or amphetamine. My prediction would be, given what we know neurophysiologically, is that if that rat has been used to instant gratification, continuous access to a high reward solution, they are more likely to become addicted to a drug of addiction. Now it's easy to say, oh, that's the rat. No, us humans behave in the same way. We have the cap capacity to behave better, but we also have the capacity to behave worse. So when it comes to um, uh, certain aspects, in today's society, the big thing is sex, okay? It, it, it's all about sex, one way or another. It's either we're killing babies because of this, or uh, we're, you know, it's, it's uh, when it comes to um, sexual behavior, it's a movie, a pizza, or sex. Um, it's, it's just become that kind of behavior. Um, so with regards to emotion, emotions and bonding and sexual behavior, um, I think one of the aspects where society has, uh, ha has sort of lost the plot is um, the fact that uh, to, while we seek to promote 
um, uh, liberal behavior, if you want to call it that, that's probably not the best term to use, but um, or um, more uh, more liberal liberal behavior, let's call it that. Um, uh, on the other hand, at the same time, we don't take into consideration what we're doing to our physiology. physiology. This is not all about morality, at least from my perspective, okay, for as I'm seeing it for as a neuroscientist. Yes, it is about morality, because I do believe what my faith tells me. But it also, from, from that, my perspective, it's also about physiology, about neuroscience. So there is a role of chemicals in bonding, which we cannot deny. And one of the things that we need to keep and uh, comprehend in, the, in this case is uh, how significant and quick the changes take place. Um, when it comes to, I, I told you guys that one of the things that I do is I take the physiology into account, the peripheral physiology. Why? Because the peripheral physiology doesn't exist in isolation from the central physiology. The two interact and work together. So as I look, if I have, if I use my leg for the wrong, wrong reason, if instead of walking with my leg, I decide that I would like to use my leg to kick every hard surface that comes in my way. There's going to be negative psychological consequences to that. I don't think it takes a genius or a neuroscientist even to be able to tell you that. So when we are talking about, as you are taking on the challenge of seeking to address what is going on in reality out there, one of the realities that we, you need to, we need to keep in mind is this reality of, well, if, what, if I'm doing that peripherally, what is it doing to me here? And if it's doing that to me here, what are the consequences on me and those around me? So um, if we had to look at the general physiology of the human person, one would see that there is a reason for, for example, if we're talking about sexuality, intercourse. Um, you can look at the, the physiology, you can look at the anatomy, you can look at the uh, immunology, and then ultimately you look at the psychology. And you can see that if it's used inappropriately, there's going to be consequences. Therefore, as a neuroscientist, and especially as a behavioral neuroscientist, my role and what I feel is, is closest to what uh, I'm passionate about and, and I understand and I can help and contribute is this whole understanding of what I do peripherally affects who I, how I act centrally and then therefore psychologically. Um, the consequences of, of inappropriate sexual behavior are vast, okay? And I know we can start going into the moral aspect, but that's not my goal. If you look at, uh, uh, um, with, even with regards to, for example, uh, aspects of um, contraceptive uh, use, or even, uh, let's, start, let's start with this, with regards to, you know, to one of the arguments in society these days is what is normal sex. And basically it's, well, whatever you feel like. But that's not what physiology is telling us because there are consequences to inappropriate sex as there are consequences to appropriate the way, the order in which nature was created. If one follows that order, then there are rewards. If one doesn't, there are consequences. Okay? Um, you, one of the things, and you'll see this in biopsychology uh, books or behavioral neuroscience books, they will tell you that masturbation is okay. Is it? Then you look at the evidence. So I, I guess one of the things that I would like to challenge you to do is to think outside the box to challenge what you read. 
your strength, I've always held a belief that your strength in your argument is never when you can argue and be, be, be supported by those people around you or, or basically argue with things that support what you like or what you think are okay. Your strength of your argument is always when you are able to take those people who are trying to distort the truth, what they're saying, you take what they're saying and you tear it apart and throw it back in the right order. That's where the strength of an argument is. Consequences of pornography. Uh, worth reading here. Overall, the body of research on pornography reveals a number of negative attitudes and behaviors that are connected with its use. Um, it functions as a teacher, a permission giver, a trigger of these negative behaviors and attitudes. The damage is seen in men, women and children, and both married and single adults. Involves pathological behaviors, illegal behaviors that are both illegal and pathological. You look at the brain, and again, look at the, the I mean, this is uh, really interesting as, as you see this, and you see this repeatedly, okay? Uh, you see this with drugs of abuse. You see this, the opposite of this, with prayer and meditation. And there's MRI studies that show this. So you look at here, you see a decrease in prefrontal cortical thickness. Prefrontal cortex is the, the part of the cortex that is involved in the higher level thinking and functioning. And you see um, increased connectivity and, and issues with regards to the striatal dopaminergic system. Molly, what time was I supposed to end? I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Um, so, I, I, um, briefly, because I, now that I mentioned that, I, I want to just qualify that. I, in what you saw there, um, in what you saw here, what we're seeing is again an imbalance in this filtration. It, that imbalance is the same thing that takes place in schizophrenia, same thing that takes place in ADHD, same things that takes place in compulsive behaviors. Okay? Um, I mentioned the fact with regards to meditation and drugs of abuse. Um, two separate studies, one looking at psilocybin, um, which is um, magic mushroom, um, and the other one looked at meditation. Um, when I was showing you the cortex, there is a part of the frontal cortex known as the cingulate cortex. It's probably somewhere around this area on the inside, right over the ventricle. Um, that area um, is, uh, the cingular cortex is involved in what's known as error detection. Now, I don't care what other people may try and say with regards to, you know, this is not an error detection in terms of telling you moral or immoral. It could have implications in that regard, but error detection in terms of telling the body, this is not right, don't do it. This is not the right behavior. And it may be more of a primitive kind of error detection. Okay, so uh, please don't misunderstand me. I am not trying to confuse this error detection with morality. There are two distinct things. Morality comes from higher up and is something that works on this. But the cingulate cortex is important in being able to control inappropriate behaviors. So for example, one of the things that you will notice in people who abuse with drugs, and I would predict that something like this could be seen also in people with pornography, um, or people who have inappropriate eating behaviors, um, people who compulsively eat, people who, because this is one of the things you need to understand. It doesn't have to be something big to rewire my brain. 
you know, there are obviously religious reasons why we fast during Lent. But there's also a physiology behind that. There's a change that takes place physiologically that causes our brain to be rewired, uh, to be reconnected in a particular way. Why do you think, many of us have probably heard the statement being said, you don't fast or you don't do something during Lent and then stop at the end of it. You're supposed to be training yourself for the rest of your life. Well, how are you training yourself? It's not some fluffy thing up there. You're rewiring your brain, literally. Okay? Um, so the cingulate cortex and people abusing with psilocybin was shown to, show, to have lower activation. The frontal cortex was shown to have uh, lower activation. The striatum, which is the area associated with reward and part of the limbic system, showed higher activation. On the other hand, the study that, uh, that, that looked at prayer and meditation, especially uh, meditation, I believe it had a minimum requirement of about 10 minutes of silent meditation, um, showed increased activity in the frontal cortex and lowered activity in the limbic system. It was totally a reverse of what one would see in drugs of abuse. So what our, um, our behavior is constantly being modified. Our behavior and how I train myself in the little things is going to affect how I act in the larger things. Contraception. You know, we, it, it's, it's uh, the government tries to force it on people. People try to force it on people. All sorts of, I, I mean, all you have to do is have more than one child these days and they'll be telling you something, commenting with regards to your inability to control yourself. Um, but when it comes to contraception, um, this study was actually a very interesting study because it actually showed how, notice, this is pre-introduction of contraceptives. Contraceptives are in introduced, look at this. And then in the 1970s, when contraceptives pretty much became uh, established, they pretty much settled at in a similar rate to pre prior to here, but uh, it remained high. What, this was the conclusion of the study. Okay? These people took into consideration the fact that women went out to work, more women were becoming educated. None of those factors were really important. It was contraceptives that stood out. You may think, why would contraceptives do that to a society? Uh, again, and this is why, as I said, it goes broad and then it comes, it, it, you need to bring it into the brain. It's because of the effects that they have on, um, on the body. I mean, think about it. If you have your body, as a, if you're a female, and I obviously cannot speak for females because I'm not female, um, but if you're a female and your body is constantly going through this cycle every 28 days, do you think that flattening that cycle chemically is not going to have a negative consequence on your neurotransmitters, on your other hormones, and therefore then on your behavior? So one of the aspects that we also need to keep in mind here is the whole idea of pheromones. Pheromones are basically um, uh, chemicals that are detected at a subconscious level. I mean, we are swimming in a sea of pheromones here. Okay, um, and, and that is something that needs to be taken into consideration because our behavior and how we act um, is, is sometimes at a subconscious level, both in the giving and in the responding. Okay, so for example, 
uh, one of the studies that I don't believe I actually mentioned here, um, looked at, and I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to comment on the ethics of these studies, okay? Uh, that's a totally different story of itself. But one of the studies um, that uh, uh, is related to this looked at the tips that pole dancers received depending on whether they were, what part of the cycle they were in, or whether they were using contraceptives. Interestingly, the interesting part came when you looked at the results, because the results showed that those people who, um, those people that women were rated as being more attractive during the part when they were ovulating, less attractive during the time when they were going through their period, but those women that were using contraceptives did not show that fluctuation. And there is an evolutional, um, is that an English word? Um, <laughs> evolutionary uh, reason behind that. When a woman is going through um, her ovulation, that is when she is most likely most wanting to have intercourse in order to propagate the species. Okay, um, so this is, and I mean, I, you know, one of the things I emphasize, it's unlikely that these women went around telling the people that they were with what part of the cycle they were at. Okay, so this is something that is detected at a subconscious level. Um, <clears throat> men use olfactory cues to distinguish between ovulating and non-ovulating women. Um, there's a number, oral contraceptives mess around with that. Okay, males rated sexual attractiveness of non-users, as I said, highest at mid-cycle. Um, Androstadienone, um, which is an androgenic hormone, it's the precursor of testosterone. It's not co this, uh, consciously discernible as an odor, but it is known to change and modulate various regions of the brain that are associated with human behavior, such as the prefrontal cortex, the higher um, executive function, amygdala, emotion, visual cortex, looking at visual stimuli and cerebellum, um, primarily involved, or one of the aspects that it's involved in is fine motor movement. Um, the, the, I spoke about the aspect, the fact that there is an increased sexual desire during ov ovulation in the woman. And again, see, as I'm talking here, this talk was called Neuroscience and Faith. You may be thinking, well, where's the, what's ovulation down there got to do with what's going on up here? It has a lot to do with it. Um, I always state that, you know, I think if men really took the time to understand the physiological, hormonal, chemical changes that take place in the woman as she goes through the cycle, I think there would be less jokes that go around with regards to the mood that women are in as they are going and the changes that take place as they are going through the cycle. Because what goes on at the level of the hormones is going to affect the neurotransmitters ultimately. Odor pl plays a role in human mate choice. Um, the MHC, the major histocompatibility complex, is a, a, a molecule that basically identifies self Okay, um, there are reasons for not wanting to be like self and that's because you increase the strength of the species as two people who are different come together to produce offspring. Um, women going off contraceptives can experience a change in that preference. And this is where the logic um, of the, uh, the possibility of this from a physiological perspective of what we saw in that graph that I showed you initially with regards to um, how contraceptives may be related to divorce. 
and a correlation, I can't say causation. But once you start adding all of this information together, and I mean, I'm just touching the surface here. I, I mean, I'm barely skimming the surface. Uh, once you start adding this onto that correlation, then you start seeing a sense in what's going on. And again, I, c I cannot but refer to what Dr. Keebler said last time about this order that is written, written in nature. Obviously, there are the negative consequences of contraceptives, and that's their role in cancer um, as abortifacients. Um, even, even, and look at this, even on the female genital tract secretions. Female genital tract, there are studies that show that, that the secretions, the ejaculation, ejaculate that occurs uh, during intercourse um, is very similar to, what, to the ejaculate in men with the difference that it does not contain semen. It does not contain sperm, sorry. Um, but uh, one of the things that is really interesting about this is that this ejaculate contains antibiotic properties. And this is messed around with by contraceptives. So think about it. Why is that necessary from, why is that logical from a physiological perspective? It's logical because if you have, if you have a situation where a woman is having intercourse and she's protected from a bacterial infection, then she is more likely to have sexual intercourse, therefore more likely to have children, and therefore more likely for the species to be propagated. On the other hand, take a person who is not taking, and again, think about this potential relation to divorce. A person taking contraceptives reduces the antibiotic properties within the body, therefore sexual intercourse may potentially become painful. Therefore, the likelihood of wanting to actually have sexual intercourse decreases. Sexual intercourse is obviously part of the relationship, um, of the um, married and the close relationship that brings the couple together. And then you can imagine the consequences thereof. Modesty. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things, obviously, from a, from a, uh, from a uh, moral perspective, uh, one of the things that we uh, worry about is, well, modesty, immodesty is wrong. But immodesty is not just wrong from a moral perspective, it's also wrong. And see, this is where uh, I, I, I feel that the faith and the science really come together. If you take that moment to step back and see them coming together, you need to let them tell you the story. Not have the story in your head and want to tell the story. You let them tell you the story. So when we look at modesty, um, why is it important? Well, from an evolutionary perspective, which is what these authors were looking at, um, in terms of a man looking at a female, the waist-to-hip ratio plays a significant role in terms of um, uh, attractiveness. But one of the things that they actually studied and looked at in the study was eye fixation in terms of various parts of the body. Uh, the face, the breast, the waist to hip ratio, and, and then the groin area. Um, and one of the, what, what is, let's get away from the graph, the summary of these findings. Basically what you see is a major, the biggest part of the fixation, that was, this was an, a naked model um, that was then altered, so it's the same model that is altered in order to alter the waist to hip ratio. Um, and also breast size, because they were looking at that aspect. Um, what, what you see is this fixation on, on the breast. Now the authors go on to describe that this makes sense 
because the, in terms of uh, the stimulation of the breast during intercourse, it plays a significant role in terms of bringing people together. And guess what? The chemical that plays a role in that aspect of bonding is oxytocin that is associated with dopamine release in the limbic system that then causes various changes in the wiring within the brain that ultimately lead to, uh, lead to changes in behavior and adaptations to behavior. In fact, these authors go to, uh, to predict, I don't believe that they've actually conducted the study, that had you to uh, look, uh, do, do a study, similar, uh, similar study, but looking at the buttocks, the, looking at the backside, uh, again, the major focus would be there, secondary female characteristics. And if you think, if you've studied history, one of the things that, have you ever seen pictures of statues of um, goddesses of fertility? What's the area that is focused on? Not the head. It's usually the breast, and, and I mean, I speak from this even from historical evidence we have in Malta. And it's the breast and also the area of the waist to hip ratio. Because the, the, depending on uh, that increased waist to hip ratio, it usually tended to reflect um, higher fertility. Um, this whole idea uh, of uh, contraceptives uh, and abortion, uh, are they necessary when it comes to, when it comes to uh, rape, for example? Okay? Um, and the answer is generally no. I, I, again, I could go into great detail in this regard, but the body, physiologically starting from the brain and then all the way down, is, is made such that it knows how to respond under different circumstances. Why is it, I mentioned earlier, that when you are sick, you potentially go into an acute form of depression? Because your body needs to go into that depression in order to allow it to give it the strength and the time that it needs in order to deal with what is attacking your body. So things change in terms of order of priority on a constant basis. Um, there's much I could say in terms of a lot of things. Now this may be funny, but it's not. Um, and I'm near the end here, I've got a couple more slides. This was uh, German soldiers, apparently these are some of the most elite uh, soldiers in the German army. And one of the things that was being noticed was the fact that these people were developing um, left breasts. These men were developing growth in their left breast. And the, what they blamed it on was this whole idea of the fact apparently several times a day during their, um, the, what they have to do, they, ha they slam the, their hand with the gun um, on their chest, on their left chest. This caused a change in the, in, in, in the body that ultimately led to breast growth. The reason I put this up is because it's so easy for us to think, oh, it's way out there, it's not going to affect me. What I want you to understand and comprehend and take is the fact that it does affect us. It affects the now, even if we may not see it immediately. There's evidence that shows that humans can teach themselves to accept unnatural behavior. Um, this, uh, and this will be this is my second last slide. This is a really interesting study. I can't prove the existence of free will, but I can show its actions. This study, people were shown pornographic material and given two choices. Um, one, was, one group was told that they should look at the uh, images and let their emotions be what their emotions are when you're looking at pornographic material. 
The other group was told to restrain their emotions when they are looking at these images. The people that were under a sexual arousal condition did not restrict themselves. You see activation in the amygdala, temporal cortex, and in the hypothalamus, which is key in terms of hormonal control and chemical changes. People who are told to control their behavior, you don't see any activation in that area. But you do see activation in the cingulate cortex and the frontal cortex. These people were given a choice. They could have disobeyed it. There's the action of free will. I can't talk to my animals, I do, but I, I, you know, uh, if I talk to my animals, it's not going to make a difference to their behavior. I'm just being insane. Okay, but when you talk to a human and give them an instruction, a human has the ability and the capacity to say yes or no, I will act, I will not act. So while this does not prove and put in a bottle um, free will, it shows the actions of free will. And this is my final slide. What I, the, the, I want the take home messages. Neuroscience does not explain our faith. It's not its role. I don't do neuroscience because I want to understand my faith. I want to do neuroscience because I'm amazed, I'm awed at what goes on in the brain. It's the frontier we will never fully understand. I, I, I love the challenge of answering one question, creating another 10. Okay? Um, it, it's that aspect. Um, but it helps me see God's creation. Helps me see the order he's put in nature. And then I want you to keep in mind certain quotes here. Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. And my favorite, St. Bonaventure. And thus our mind, illumined and flooded by such brilliance, unless it is blind, can be led through, through itself to contemplate that eternal light. The radiation and contemplation of this light lifts up the wise in wonder. And on the contrary, it leads to confusion, the fools who do not believe so that they may understand. And at the final quote, whoever therefore is not enlightened by such splendor of created things is blind. Whoever is not awakened by such outcries is deaf. Whoever does not praise God because of all these effects is dumb. Whoever does not discover the first principle from such clear signs is a fool. Therefore open your eyes, alert your ears of your spirit, open your lips and apply your heart, so that in all creatures you may hear praise God, love and worship, glorify and honor your God, lest the whole world rise against you. And that's because everything is written in the nature around us. God is there in the order that we see around us. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.